I'd like you to turn with me to James chapter 1 this morning, if you would. And I'd like uh, for us this morning to look at the first paragraph in the one letter that James wrote that we have preserved for us in the New Testament. So we'll take it as our objective this morning to get uh, from verse 1 through verse 8 and uh, understand something of what we read. There's a very brief introduction to this letter in verse 1. James introduces it with these words. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Some question about who this James was. He evidently was not the James who was one of the twelve original apostles. That James was martyred uh, by Herod Agrippa in about 44 A.D., probably before any of the New Testament was written. So most likely this James was the James who was the brother of the Lord, half-brother, I guess, in a technical sense. But as you remember, uh, Jesus' brothers during his earthly ministry did not believe in him. In fact, they thought he was crazy, tried to have him uh, committed to a mental institution at one point. And it wasn't until after Jesus had died and had risen from the dead and then had appeared to his brother James that James became a believer in the Lord. Now, when James became a believer, he grew very rapidly in his faith and before long was one of the leaders in the first century church there at Jerusalem. In fact, um, when we find him uh, in Acts 15, he is functioning essentially as the chairman of the board of elders of the first century church there in Jerusalem. So he is sort of our version of Ray Cookingham, and this is a letter that he eventually got around to writing. And in Acts 15, if you reread that account, you will find that there was a dispute going on between certain Jews who claimed that all of the Gentiles, when they became believers in Christ, needed to be circumcised. In other words, they had to become good Jews before they could become good Christians. And James was the one that uh, had the deciding, uh, deciding words to say in that controversy and set the gospel free from that kind of cultural uh, bondage and enabled it to go then into the rest of the Roman Empire. So he was a very critical figure early in the history of the church. Uh, he was uh, one of the nicknames that he carried around later in life was that of Old Camel Knees, and he got this uh, reputation because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer, interceding for his people. And eventually, in about 62 A.D., he also suffered martyrdom. So this letter was probably written in about 60 A.D. by James, the brother of the Lord. Now, what is striking to me about that fact is the way that James starts off his letter. Now, if I was the brother of the Lord... And I was the uh, probably the leading hot rock in the church at Jerusalem in uh, 50 A.D. That's the way I would have started off my letter. I would have said, this is Brian Fisher. I am a brother of the Lord Jesus, and I am chairman of the Board of Elders, and you all ought to listen to me. But see, the way James starts, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that... Uh, the way uh, James introduces himself is not as somebody who is special or elevated, but someone who's just another slave in God's household. I heard of uh, one time when Oswald Hoffman, who was a, uh, the Bible teacher on the Lutheran Hour, and once he was introduced before a large group of uh, ordinary, average Christians like the rest of us, and the uh, MC obviously wanted to give him a proper introduction and just went on and on about his degrees and his accomplishments and what a, what a superb uh, ministry he'd had. And this took about five or ten minutes, and finally Oswald Hoffman got up to the microphone, and the way he started out, he said, 
uh, despite what you've heard, I'm, I'm just a nobody. I'm nobody special, just like you, just somebody that God can use. And that's James' perspective here. Nobody special, just another slave in God's household. Now, he starts his letter in verses 2 through 4, and this um, opening paragraph sets the stage, really, for the rest of the book. In this first chapter, James lays a foundation that will enable the people he is writing to to respond to everything else he has to say in this letter. So it's very crucial that we have a good understanding of what James is trying to communicate to us in this opening chapter. In verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is obviously talking here about the proper response to whatever he is referring to by this little word that is translated trials. Now, if you have a New American Standard, as I do, you will notice that in the margin they've given you an alternate translation for this word, and that's the word temptations. In other words, James could be saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various temptations. Now, what's the difference between a trial and a temptation? Well, it's the same word in Greek, but it has, uh, can have either of those meanings. It can either refer to a trial or to a temptation. Now, as you think about it for a minute, you'll realize that when we think of trials, we normally think of difficult external circumstances. So James could be talking about how we're to respond to difficult external circumstances. Or he could be saying, on the other hand, uh, that we are to know how to respond to temptation. Now, temptation as we will see in just a minute, is something that occurs internally. It's not primarily external, but it's internal. It's an internal impulse to do something wrong. Now, that, I believe, is what James is talking about in this passage. If you have a King James, you'll realize that that's the way they've translated it. They translate this word temptations here. Now, there's some confirmation in this down in verses 13 and 14 where James uses the same word, but it's translated differently. It says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now that word in verse 13, that's translated tempted all the way through, is the same word that we have in verse 2. The only difference is that in verse 13 it's a verb, and in verse 2 it's a noun. It's exactly the same kind of relationship we have between the word tempt which is a verb, and temptation, which is a noun. You can see that they come from the same root and they mean the same thing. One simply verb and the other is a noun. Well, if you look at verse 13, you can understand why the New American Standard translators chose temptation for their translation here instead of test. What would be wrong with this translation? Let's assume for a moment that they had translated this with the word test, which would be the verb form of trial or to try. It says, Let no one say when he is tested... I am being tested by God, for God cannot be tested by evil, and he himself does not test anyone. Well, you realize immediately what's wrong with that translation. And what's wrong with it is that God does test us, that God does place us in circumstances which test us, that is, they reveal to us, they expose to us our spiritual condition. Now, he doesn't encourage us to give the wrong answers to those tests, 
which is what James is talking about here, but he does test us. We find that in the account of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. We find that Jesus even did this with one of his disciples in John 6. He tested him. So that's not what James is talking about here. He's talking rather about temptation. And I suggest, because it's the same word in verse 13, that we ought to translate it the same way in verse 2, that James here, in this opening several paragraphs, is talking about how we are to respond to temptation. Now, the first thing he discusses when he's talking about temptation down in verse 13 again is he discusses the origin of temptation, where it comes from. And the first thing he says about where temptation comes from is it does not come from without. The urge to do something wrong doesn't come from outside ourselves. And that's what we would like to believe. If you're anything like me, you always want to be able to pin the blame on something or someone else. They have just had a bad day or I've been under a lot of pressure lately or my kids won't potty train or uh, my car won't start and I'm late for work. And see, we want to blame it on the pressures that we encounter. Or we want to blame it on God. Say, God, if you hadn't made me Italian or oversexed, I wouldn't have these problems. See? <laughs> but James says that temptation, the urge to do something wrong, does not come from without. But rather, he says, it comes from within in verse 13. He says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the word lust there is simply a word for strong desire. That the temptation to do something wrong arises from within, from our own desires. And this, by the way, is why uh, monasteries in Christian colleges have never quite accomplished what they hope to. Uh, the, the thinking is basically good, that if we can get our our, uh, our people get Christians into an environment where they are free from some of these temptations that they will encounter in other places of the world, that we can protect them from that and help them to grow to maturity. But the problem with that is that all of us are carriers. See, we can't get away from this. We carry this basic uh, twist, this basic uh, distortion of personality which inclines us to do evil. We carry that around with us. We can't shake it. So James says it comes from within. Now, in verses 14 and 15, James traces a process which starts with temptation and culminates in death, and I'd like to review that process with you. Now, first of all, he, can, he describes temptation further because this is where this process starts. It begins with temptation. And he says in verse 14 that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, he says two things about temptation here in this little verse. The first thing he says about temptation is that it is powerful. It's something that carries us away. And the idea there is to be dragged along or to be taken in tow by some force. Uh, if you are fond of watching the uh, superstars on uh, TV, they're launching that this week. And one of the featured events is a tug of war. And you get the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees on one side of this huge mud pit and they begin to tug on one another. And sooner or later, one of the sides begins to weaken. And you can see the New York Yankees being pulled, dragged along toward this mud bath. Well, James says temptation is something like that. It carries us away. It takes us in tow. We're actually being pulled by a force. And he also says that temptation is very appealing. He says we are enticed by our own lust. Uh, that that I don't know if you've ever realized this, but... You are never attracted to doing something that, uh, that is ugly or, or, or uh, unattractive to you. 
that temptation always is, urges us to do something which appears to be appealing. If any of you are fishermen in this room, you know that when you, uh, you want to catch fish, you don't just take a hook and drop it uh, in the uh, river or drop it in the lake. They, the fish will steer, steer clear of that as uh, quick as anything. So what you do is you conceal that hook with a piece of bait. And the fish see the bait, they're attracted to it, they're lured to it, and then you've got them. And James says temptation is the same way. It is not only powerful, it exerts a force on us, but it's also very appealing. Now he goes on to the next stage to tell us what happens next in this process. It says in verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, the question is, what does it mean for lust to conceive? What James is talking about here is when we give in to that desire. We have a desire to do something wrong. It's exerting a powerful influence on us. We're attracted to do something wrong. And finally, we give in to it. We yield to it. The will gives up the fight, gives in, goes ahead and does it. James says that's when lust has conceived. And when lust conceives, he says, it gives birth to sin. Sin is the offspring or the child of the union between temptation and a will which consents, which gives in. Now, the important thing that I want you to catch here is a couple of things, but one of the important things I want you to catch here is that uh, to be tempted is not to sin. Now, I think most of us carry around this misconception that if we feel this urge, we feel this impulse to do something wrong, that we've sinned, that in God's sight it's just the same as if we'd already done it. See, James doesn't say that. He says there is a difference between being tempted and sinning. It's only when our desire has conceived that it gives birth to sin. As long as we are resisting the impulse that's leading us to sin... We have not sinned. Uh, And I think what we generally tend to do is when these impulses come, they appear to be so strong and they appear to be so appealing that we just throw in the towel, we raise the white flag at the first sign of trouble. But see, it's just like in a tug-of-war when the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees go at it and the, the gun goes off and the Yankees begin to feel that tug on the other end of the rope. It's a strong pull. But that's not a sign that the battle is over. See, it's simply a sign that the battle has just begun. See, the issue has yet to be decided. Now, this is even true with mental sins that the Lord talks about in Matthew 5. You may have thought of that as a possible exception. See, it's even true with mental thoughts that come into our mind, thoughts of anger, thoughts of lust, thoughts of revenge. See, we cannot control the impulses that come into our minds. We can't screen these out. As David explained to us last week, ever since Adam's sin, we have been twisted in our human personalities, and these thoughts are going to come into our mind, unbidden. They're often going to come in at the times when we least expect it, see? But when they do, that's just a sign that the battle has started. Now, we can give in to those mental urges uh, just as we can give in to physical urges. And this is what the Lord says in Matthew 5. If you read that passage carefully, you'll realize that what he says is that... uh, I say to you that everyone who looks after a woman in order to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. As uh, Dave is also fond of saying, it's not the first look that's the 
trouble. It's the second look that's the problem, see? And James says that's where we have control over this process. We do not have to give in. When the urge arises, that's the sign that the battle has been joined, not a sign that the battle is over. There is still the possibility of victory. <clears throat> Some of you know who Ray Steadman is, and he told a little story on himself that illustrates this. He uh, does a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking. He was uh, speaking at some Christian conference down in Southern California, and you may have heard that some of you may have heard this story before. He was staying in a uh, very nice hotel down there, and uh, he was there three or four days. And every morning when he'd gotten up, there had been this little coffee maker on the counter there, and he brewed himself up a fresh hot cup of coffee every morning, hopped in the shower, and when he got out of the shower, there was a nice steaming hot cup of coffee waiting for him. So the last day, he was packing up his suitcase, and as he was just about to close the lid, his eye was caught by this little coffee maker on the counter. He began to think to himself, you know, that's a pretty dandy little unit, and I do a lot of traveling, and I could just unplug that sucker, and there's a nice spot right here in my suitcase, fit right in the corner there, and no one would ever know. They've got to have dozens of these in the warehouse in the basement. They'll just plug another one in for the next guy. Well, that, see, is being tempted. That's being carried away and enticed by a desire to do something wrong, see. But in his case, lust, this desire, never conceived, see. The battle was joined, and he turned away, gained a small victory in the battle of temptation. Now, for most of us, it tends to work the other way. I think we generally tend to give in when the, uh, when the battle is joined. The greatest illustration I can think of this is just watching people uh, do battle with a second piece of pie. You know, they're... <clears throat> now you're at someone's house, and there's this, you know, there's this hot, steaming apple pie, and you've already had one piece, and the hostess says, come on, you've got to help me finish this pie. And so she sets down a big piece of apple pie in front of you, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I really shouldn't. And there's the tug going on. See, there's the battle has been joined. And the battle is over when you pick up that fork, see? That's the, that's, the, that's the white flag. Long as you haven't picked up the fork, you've still got a chance of victory. But when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that's the uh, child then, is sin. We do things when we yield to this temptation. We do things that are wrong. We do things that are hurtful and harmful. And eventually, he says, this process issues in death. When sin is accomplished, that is, when it is full-grown, when it's run its course, it brings forth death. And you notice there's a, there's a time delay there. It's when sin has run its course, when it's accomplished, when it's full grown, that it brings forth its own child, which is death. And that's one of the, uh, the difficult things, one of the deceiving things about temptation for us is that we don't always see the connection between giving into temptation and the death that we experience as a result. I was forcefully reminded of this when I read an interview with... Um, this uh, Janet Cook, who wrote uh, an article for the uh, series of stories for the Washington Post that won her a Pulitzer Prize. It was about a young eight-year-old uh, black child in a ghetto who was essentially growing up from almost day one to be a junkie. And she found in the course, in the early stages of her investigation, she found out that the story that she was being fed by this contact about this young boy was false. It was phony. It wasn't true. But she'd already written a couple of articles that the editors had liked, and she was faced suddenly with a dilemma. What do I do? I know that this story is not true, but I also know that my editors like the story, and they want this to go on the front page of one of the leading newspapers in the country. 
What do I do? Well, the battle was joined. She gave in to the temptation to go for the glory in the front page and, as a result, got a Pulitzer Prize. But then the story began to unravel, and death was the result. A great deal of shame, embarrassment, and guilt. See, death is always a result of giving in to the urge to do something wrong, no matter how appealing the desire is. So this is, the te- this is the process that James traces for us in verses 14 and 15. It begins with temptation. The second step is the will yields to temptation, gives in. This produces sin, and the final outcome of sin is death. But back in verses 2 through 4, James traces another process, which also starts at the same point, begins with temptation, but it issues in life and maturity instead of death. And I'd like to trace that for you. Let's reread verses 2 through 4 again to get James thinking here. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a couple of observations I'd like to make about verse 2. First of all, you'll notice that he says when we encounter temptation and not if. So doing battle with temptation is not an elective in the Christian life. It's a required course. And it's something we're never going to outgrow. See, there's a myth abroad in some Christian circles that the older you get, the, the less you feel the impulse to do things wrong. Well, James basically says that's not true. You are going to encounter temptation as long as you live. You may develop, by God's grace, the ability to say no more quickly, but the pull and the appeal of temptation is still going to be just as strong. So it's when and not if. You'll notice also he says that we encounter various temptations. If you uh, look up in your strongest concordance, you will discover that this is the same word that Luke uses to describe the traveler in the Good Samaritan story who fell in among the thieves. That That is, he was surprised by thieves. And this is the way temptation often works for us. Uh, uh, Temptation surprises us. It catches us at the the least expected moments. One of the men in our Thursday night Bible study this last week was telling us about a time when he was driving his uh, vehicle down Chinden Avenue and he was praising God about about a great work that God had done, was meditating on Scripture and thanking God. And all of a sudden, a guy cut right in front of him and he was going 45 miles an hour, and all of a sudden a guy pulled right in front of him, and he said, I was amazed at the thoughts that immediately leapt into my mind. You know? <laughs> said, you talk, about, you talk about doing a 180. And see, temptation is like this. See, it catches us at awkward moments. It takes us off guard. It uh, surprises us. And James also describes these temptations as various. That is, temptations come in various shapes and sizes. Uh, many of us in this room will do battle characteristically with different temptations than others of us. For some, for some of us, the, the key temptation may be with sexual temptation. For others, it may be a temptation to be angry with your children or your wives or the people you work with. It may be a temptation to impatience. It may be a temptation to, uh, to, to, to get revenge, to get even with someone who has hurt you. It may be a temptation to, to hold on to a, to a grudge, to refuse to forgive that kind of thing. Uh, if a friend has treated you in a way that you don't feel is, is proper, there may be a temptation to withdraw, to become aloof, to become cold. 
So temptations come in various shapes and various sizes for us all. It may be a battle with alcohol. You may have difficulty controlling your intake of, of liquor. Well, it comes in different shapes and different sizes. Temptations are various. But the key thing about this is James says there is one way to handle all of these. There's one way to respond to temptation no matter what shape it takes in life. And he says in verse 2 that we are to consider it all joy when we run into these temptations. That is, we're not to regard temptation as something that is a foe, as something that should cause us to be anxious, to be uptight, to feel guilty, but rather we should consider temptation as joy. We should regard these things as positive, things that are friends in the spiritual life. And it's because, James says, we know something. The reason we can consider this joy is because of what we know in verses 3 and 4. It says, we know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That is, the reason we can regard temptations, these, these urges to do wrong things, the reason we can regard these positively is that they are productive in spiritual life. They produce things, they do things for us, if we follow the process that James lays out here. So the process starts in the same place. It starts with temptation. And the second step, James says in verse 3, is to realize that a temptation is a test of faith. It's not a test of willpower. We cannot defeat temptation by an exercise of, of willpower, by gritting our teeth and uh, determining that we're going to lick this thing. It's not by willpower that temptation is defeated, James says, but it's by faith. That is, the way we pass the test of temptation when it comes to us is by faith to depend upon the power of God at work within us to enable us to say no to temptation. So if the temptation is met with faith, a dependence upon God's power at work within us to say no, then temptation becomes a productive thing in life. And the third step, James says, is that this faith produces endurance. Well, what is endurance in this context of temptation? Well, endurance, quite simply, is the ability to resist temptation without giving in. The ability to hang in there when the pressure is on to do something wrong and not yield to it, no matter how powerful or no matter how appealing the temptation is. Just the ability to hang in there and to resist temptation. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had some friends over, and they... Uh, uh, needed to talk to someone, needed some counsel and some prayer and just some encouragement. And they hadn't had much in a long time, so we spent a long evening with them. And if uh, those of you that know my wife know that uh, when 9 o'clock hits, she just uh, kind of fades. You know, the lights are on, but nobody's home. And, uh, and these friends who were from out of town were with us until about 11.30 that night. And after they left, I talked to Deb afterwards, and she, and I asked her, how are, you, how are you doing? And she says, well, I really wanted to get impatient, and I wanted to be indifferent, and I wanted to withdraw. I wanted to just leave the room and go to bed. But, she says, I knew that God wanted me to be available to meet the needs of these people, and so I trusted him for the ability simply to endure, not to give in to those temptations, but to hang tough, maintain my openness and my love and my warmth. Well, that's what James is talking about. Temptation, which is met by faith, by dependence upon God, produces endurance, the ability to hang in there. And James says this endurance produces something itself. Let endurance, in verse 4, have its perfect result 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is, it is the process of responding to temptation that produces maturity in life. This is how we get to be people who are complete and mature and lack nothing. This is the only way we get there. The only way we can become the mature and whole and complete people that we want to be is by encountering temptation and defeating it by God's power. That's how God produces maturity and wholeness in life. Now, if you are like me, you will find that in your experience that you are tempted in precisely the areas in which you are the weakest. Uh, C.S. Lewis once made the comment that he has absolutely no inclination to gamble. It's not a particular weakness of his. And he found it that in his whole life he was never once tempted to gamble. Satan just kind of left him alone there because he realized there wasn't much to work with. So all of us have areas of weakness characteristic weakness, and we'll find that that is where we are tempted the most often, that these temptations reveal to us uh, our deficiency, our lack of character. Well, the question is, what are we to do when this happens, when these temptations point out the very areas in which we're the weakest and the most efficient? How are we to respond? Well, this is what James talks about in verses 5 through 8. Temptation is often like, by the way, uh, if you ever wanted to, you ever want to find out if you've got uh, rats in your cellar, what you do, what you don't do, is to put on your army boots and uh, open the cellar door and turn on the light and then clomp down the stairs, okay, because the rats will hide. If you want to find out if you have rats in your cellar, you turn all the lights in the house out. You grab a flashlight, you carefully open that door to the cellar, and you turn the flashlight on, and then you'll catch them. Well, temptation is something like that. See, temptations that catch us off guard, that arise because of pressures we feel, they reveal to us the rats in the cellar. And the question then becomes, how do we get these rats out of the cellar? Temptation reveals them. How do we get rid of them? That's what James talks about in verses 5 through 8. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom here in James' thinking is the Old Testament sense of wisdom, which is a skill for living or character. Turn over to James 3 just for a moment, and I'll show you what I mean. In verses 17 through 18, James defines the kind of wisdom that he's talking about in his book. He says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, that's the wisdom James is talking about in chapter 1. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. If any of you lacks purity, temptation reveals a lack of purity in life, ask of God. If it reveals a lack of peaceableness, if temptation reveals that you are prone to anger and to impatience and to hostility, then ask of God. If temptation reveals to you that you lack gentleness, that is, you, are, you tend to be unkind and unkind and harsh words come to your lips, ask of God, and so on down the line. So James here, when he talks about wisdom in chapter 1, is talking about character, skill for living, the ability to respond to difficult temptations. And he says, if you lack wisdom... If temptation reveals to you a lack in any area, then ask of God who gives generously 
to all men without reproach, and it will be given to him. He describes God as one who gives generously. That is, all of the purity, all of the peaceableness, all the gentleness, all the forgiveness, all the patience that we need to resist temptation will be supplied. He gives to all men generously, and he says he gives without reproach. In other words, God is not angry with us when we find a pull to do the same things wrong that we have always felt the pull to do. <clears throat> he doesn't say to us, gee whiz, I've given you enough practice at that. Haven't you got that under control yet? Do you need to come, keep coming back to me for the same cotton-picking problems? He never says that. He gives without reproach. Never gets angry with us when we come to him. Gives us all we need to handle these temptations. But there's one condition that James lays on this gift in verse 6. It says, let him ask in faith without any doubting. The one doubting here means to be at odds with yourself. That's what the word means. Let him ask in faith without being at odds with himself. Well, what is a man who is at odds with himself in temptation? James also describes him in verse 8 as a double-minded man. Well, we're double-minded. We're at odds with ourselves when we encounter temptation when we have not decided which we want more, righteousness or pleasure. If we're double-minded, if we want righteousness and we want pleasure, and we have not made a choice between the two, then, he says, we're double-minded. And we must ask in faith without this kind of doubting. And there's two reasons we're to ask this way. The first one in verse 6 is that we'll be unstable if we don't. The one who doubts, that is the one who is at odds with himself, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, a picture of, of instability and restlessness and turmoil. If we've not made this decision, this is what life will be like. We'll find temptation carrying us and prompting us to do things we never want to do. And secondly, if we have not made this decision, we cut ourselves off from God's resources. what he says in verse 7, Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. So this is a decision we have to make. Do we want righteousness or pleasure more? If we decide that we want righteousness, then God will give us all of the grace and all of the character that we need. See, he doesn't expect us to fight these battles on our own. We just have to choose which side we want to win. If we choose righteousness, he'll give us all the grace that we need to respond. Uh, my wife and I saw the film Chariots of Fire Friday night, and one of the feature characters in this movie as a Christian, very solid evangelical Christian, a uh, man we can all be proud of. And in the climactic tension point in the movie, he was faced with the choice of winning a gold medal or doing what he knew before God was the right thing for him to do. And he faced this very same choice that James is talking about here. And he decided to do what God wanted him to do, to give up the glory of the gold medal in order to do what God wanted him to do. And he found in that choice that God supplied all of the wisdom, supplied all of the strength and all of the endurance he needed to resist even an appeal from the Prince of Wales to do something that he knew was wrong for himself. He could resist because he'd made that choice and God had supplied the power. So that's all God asks of us this morning. He doesn't ask us to resist temptation on our own, to turn, it, turn away from it. He says, you just decide that that's what you want. Ask me, and I'll give you all the grace and all the wisdom, all the character and the strength you need.
to grow into wholeness and maturity as an individual. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these searching words from James' letter. It reminds us, Lord, that we are weak. We do have uh, a twist within ourselves that prompts us to, to do things that are harmful to us and harmful to others, to lash out in anger and impatience at others. I pray that we will take James' words to heart here to recognize that you do give to us generously and without reproach. I pray that as we live this week, we can recognize that temptation is a friend to us, is helpful to us if we respond to it in faith, depend upon your great grace and strength to help us to resist. Move us to maturity through this process, Lord, by giving us your strength and your grace. Amen.